This podcast is part of the Bombpod Media Network. university professor and a passenger on a bus possibly have in common. You can find out by listening to the Minds of Madness podcast, where we uncover the series of events and state of mind leading ordinary people to do unthinkable things. The Minds of Madness is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. Hey, hello, 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 and welcome to episode 66 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. This is Jerry, and I'm joined by my wife, Tracy. Hello. As you can hear, my voice is still not 100% back, but it's a little bit better than what it was, so we can deal with it. Says you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Guys, I want to say thank you first and foremost for um, all the positive comments on last week's show. Yeah, it was amazing. Also, I want to thank you for, we switched uh, uh, to a new hosting service, and in the first 30 days, we did 100,000 downloads. Woohoo! That is, I mean, insane. That is so great. Yeah, that's uh, that's all you guys, and we can't tell you how important that is yes, to us. Yes, thank you. As we move along this fantastic journey we've I started. Know. Love, love. Love you guys so much for doing that. I didn't get a chance to do any of the iTunes reviews or anything last week because of my scratchy voice, Mm -hmm. but I do want to make sure we get to those today. First and foremost, thanks to all of our military and first responders in the world. Hoo-yah. No, wait. I didn't say that right. It's all right. You were going to screw something up along the way. Might as well just start at the beginning. Well, anyway, we love all you guys. Thank you so much. Yesterday, uh, this was Sunday when we are recording this, yesterday was Veterans Day in the U.S., but I know uh, all over the world... Um, yesterday, today, and a couple other days, uh, people are celebrating something similar for their veterans of whatever yes. uh, country they're in. So uh, the same thing goes to you guys. Thank yes. you very much for your service, no matter who you served for. Yes, you have to be acknowledged, I mean, for your all's hard fighting for us. And, you know, 
I just, I just love, and I want to hug every veteran that I see. Seriously, they are the sweetest. And we know you do. I do. I just can't help it. That and all the homeless people, and well, and all the all the murderers well, that, that um, were misjudged or no, you like I wouldn't to hug go everybody. that far. You want to hug everybody, but I do love the veterans, and I'm so um, so grateful for them. Okay, let's uh, jump in on the iTunes reviews real quick, Miss Dreama. That's kind of hot. I love it. It's a beautiful name. And then we've got, um, I think it's Paul or Pal. Pal. How about Paul? Is it P-O-W or P-A? It's P-L-W-E. Oh. Or P-L-W. Pal 22. True Crimes Historian, which is also a uh, Bomb Pod Media uh, show. If you get a chance to check them out, it's a really good show if you like true crime. Zippity Doodah. How do you not like that? Um, Yeah. Holly Sauce. Oh, love me some Holly sauce. <laughs> Lindsay B. in Texas, which I'm convinced has got to be a, a friend of Andrea Whitney. Oh, you think? Because she actually put in her um, iTunes review how much she loved Andrea Whitney's story. So I was kidding Andrea that it had to be a relative of hers or something. <laughs> <laughs> Zombie ther- Therapy, which is uh, Christy. Thank you so much. Paranormal Justin. Uh, this next one didn't actually have a name. It was just a bunch of smiley faces. Well, so, that makes me happy. I didn't know you could even do that. That's ha- cool. Happy Housekeeper, which I'm near and dear to. Yeah. I need a Happy Housekeeper. Oh, you do. Michael Redding, 1029. Last Laugh, 1985. One Dizzy Chick. Oh, man, I relate. I, I know. I thought maybe you might have wrote that one. <laughs> uh, Sandman, 1903. T.J. Brew. Sweet Anna. Thomas Jefferson, which is cool because we've got, you know, a former president weighing in. I thought that was pretty cool. And he he left us a very nice review. Yeah. Mass Daddy. That's, I don't know. It's just M-A-A-S. Anyway, thank you guys so much for your wonderful iTunes reviews. Oh, thank you so much. You're amazing. Yeah, as we always say, those actually mean a lot to us. They're actually free to do, and they're easy to do if you're on an iPhone. So anytime you can do that, it just helps us get recognized and helps us get more listens. So do it. That's part of how we get 100,000 downloads in 30 days. Do it. Do it. Patreon. We started something new uh, last week where we started doing little mini episodes. So if you're a Patreon supporter and you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month, you will get four mini episodes, which this first one we did was what, like 11 minutes, 12 mm-hmm. minutes? Yeah. So that. it's the same thing as a show. They're just shorter stories. We're going to do one of those every week. Uh, if you pledge $3, then you get the listener story, which this last one was like almost two hours long. And the one before that was almost two hours long. So that's a bonus episode you get for $5. You get all of that plus... You also get another bonus episode, which is usually about an hour long, and it's just like one of the regular shows. We mix a little true crime in with it, and then you can go up from there. But, yeah, that's pretty cool. And the $10 pledge gets you all that, and then some. You actually get a Skype call once a month if you want it. Some people don't want it. Cause, yeah, uh, I ain't trying to look at your face. Yeah, that's exactly right. We got <laughs> we got faces for radio. And uh, Well, speak for yourself. Okay. Um, but then... Um, you also get list. every every six months, or for the first six months that you're a member, you get a free T-shirt. So we had six different people get, uh, and, and we actually opened it up and just gave them a, a dollar amount so they could get anything. I know uh, Sarah Roscoe, she got a um, zip-up like purse, uh-huh. change purse, that had our logo on it. Oh, and then, wow. uh, those? We got a couple other people that haven't chimed in yet. I've already sent a T-shirt out. Good. So whatever you want it and uh still nobody's bought a shower curtain so i'm highly disappointed <laughs> they don't want our logo up their butt i think <laughs> i think nothing says 
says a good clean shower like a hibbly horror story shower curtain. Aww. That's just me. Well, that's just you. <laughs> Thank you guys for supporting us. But our, but our new patrons, uh, Minds of Madness, which is one of my favorite shows. You heard them at the very beginning. They did a, We did a promo for them. Um, Beck and Tyler, fantastic. They do a great job on true crime. And it's I don't listen to a lot of true crime, but that's one of the few that I actually do listen mm-hmm. to and listen to religiously because I just like the way that they do it. And Tyler's got one of them voices that sounds like Barry White. Oh, so don't like, be telling me that now. It's like anything he tells you, it's just Ooh. like, you know, he could read a cereal box. Mm. And it's just like. Ah. Making me want no, a Barbie sandwich. Yeah, no Frosted Flakes had that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but him and Beck do a fantastic job on, on producing the story. And um, I just really like the show. So Good. we're going to get them on. They're, they're taking a little bit of a hiatus uh, for the holidays. But yeah. we're going to get them on the show here. Good, I'm soon, excited. So. Yeah, I'm excited about it, too. He, they put out a Halloween um, mega episode. A lot of the shows ran it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mad Side just ran it. They ran it, and then, uh, but it had a bunch of podcasters came together and told stories about two hours long. But Tyler actually did the uh, the majority of the of the MC and the little oh, event, cool. so to speak. And yeah, it was it was perfect. You couldn't ask for anybody perfect for a, a Halloween episode. Good. So Good we job, had buddy. so we had uh, Minds of Madness. Annette uh, Ushman, she actually went from the five dollar up to the ten dollar well, pledge. Thank Thanks. you, Annette, honey. That's so sweet. James Chamberlain actually bought. A ten dollar a month pledge for his wife for their anniversary. Oh, get out! Yep. Oh. Rebecca Nelson, uh, uh, Mallcast, uh, Michael Taylor were all new Patreon supporters. Well, we thank we you guys so much. We appreciate you guys. You just don't even know. We do. So, are we ready to get into this story? Uh, I am so ready. I say it seems like I say this every week because and people somebody told me the other day they think we're running out of stories so we don't have a choice but to do the ones that we've been putting off. And no. that's that's never going to be the case. Oh there there gosh, are no. so many stories out there. But we do listen to you guys. And if we start getting a lot of requests for the same thing, then we look into it a little deeper and push it into mm-hmm. the um, little closer to the newer episodes. And tonight's show is going to be on Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Haunted Gettysburg. And I will say this because it seems like I say this every time. I really didn't understand how fascinating it was until I started digging into it mm-hmm. I know I've mentioned before on the show that I I can tell how long a show is going to be or how much info based on the pages of notes that I take and up until this point about 21 pages were the most pages of notes I've taken and I think this one's like 26 pages Ooh, so there were tons fancy. of things and we're going to try to take a different angle as usual on the ones that have been beat to death I guess that's kind of a more for a true crime, the beat to death. Yeah. This probably. is a, but I try to dig up some stories that, that maybe haven't been done on other podcasts. So mm-hmm. you get, if you've heard a lot on Gettysburg, maybe a lot of this stuff would be some new stuff for you. So Sounds that's good. the take. Uh, we also have an awesome interview with Fritz Zimmerman. And a lot of you out there listen to uh, mysterious uh, radio also, mm-hmm. which is, is our uh, sister uh, podcast to uh, a bomb pod media and she's actually had Fritz on a couple of times. That's where I initially heard him at. He talks about uh, giants in the world, especially in the Ohio Valley, which is right where both of these shows come from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he's absolutely fascinating. I think the whole subject's fascinating. Had never heard of it until probably the last eight or nine months. Um, and I thought it would be cool to get him on. So he actually came on and, and um, tells us a little bit about both of those subjects, that and the haunted uh, burial mounds. Oh Which yeah. Also well, those giant people probably got that way from swimming in the Ohio River. Yeah. Well, the Ohio River wasn't polluted back then. I bet when, it was. I bet it wasn't. You don't think it was? No, there at was all? no industry back then. Hmm. 
Yeah, but there could be monsters up in there. What's monsters got to do with pollution? Unless they're farting in the water or something. I don't know. I wonder if like a million tuna farted at the same time if it would cause a tidal wave. <laughs> oh, I don't know, but maybe it'd probably stink pretty good. Yeah. Don't go there. Okay. Don't. Okay. Continue <laughs> on with your story. <laughs> All right, so let's get into this. Gettysburg. Now, most Civil War experts will tell you that uh, the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863 was the greatest battle of the war. I'm not a Civil War expert, so I'll take the word for it. We thought that we would uh, actually share a few stories from some of the people that say it is the most haunted area in the United States. And just to mention in Gettysburg, we'll get most paranormal enthusiasts blood pumping. Oh, boy. I would say. Because, like I said, anytime we talk to these investigators, mm-hmm. and if I like to ask them, where would you like to go to? A lot of them say Gettysburg. Oh, wow. So, then we need to go there. Yeah. Before the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, the town was basically no different than any other small town in Pennsylvania. But in 1963... Or 1863, 1963 would have been a bad time for the Civil War. Mm-hmm, <laughs> we, got, mm-hmm. we had enough civil unrest in 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1863, it had about 2,400 people and was a thriving uh, industry in the, in the area was uh, carriages. They built carriages. Oh, wow. Yep. They had two colleges, and uh, all that was about to change, though. The Confederate and Union armies clashed on June 30th, and it lasted for about three days. That basically is the Battle of Gettysburg. So three days? Yeah, three days. It was three days of nonstop battle. Oh, wow. I bet they were pooped. Yeah. So this battle took place across hills, through the forest, and even in the streets of Gettysburg. By the end of the third day, it would end up being known as the bloodiest day of the whole Mm, war. Just that third day. Must have just gone nonstop. Almost a third of the men at the battle lost their lives. Approximately 50,000 people. Oh, my gosh. In three days, 50,000 people dead in one little spot. No wonder it's haunted as hell. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure. So, obviously, it's no surprise that any of the buildings there uh, are believed to be haunted. Uh, In Gettysburg, these spirits make themselves known more strongly than anywhere else in the United States. Wow. And like I said, a lot of these, some of these buildings were there during the time, and some of them have been built since, but it's still on the same land. Mm Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Gettysburg is that if you're asking business owners and stuff where the battle took place, they'll tell you you're standing at. So if you're at a building and you say, hey, where did this happen? They're like, oh, it happened right here. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is that the official battlefield is actually just outside of the town, and it's operated by the National Park Service now. But like we said, this did kind of spill into the streets. Yeah, I was going to say, so it some of it, Some of it did happen, mm-hmm. but the main battlefield was actually right outside. Now, as we said before, like I said, it, it did make it to the street, so that's why people say that. Skirmishes actually broke out throughout the town, and when uh, uh, the feds actually came in on the first day of the battle, they poured into Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like, like I said, it originally came, but when the feds came, that's when it started getting into the actual city of Gettysburg. Now, they thought uh, the reason that the feds actually came in is they thought the Cemetery Hill would be a relatively safe place to come to, which is right in that, that vicinity. Many people were killed there. And their bodies were left in the street to await burial. Oh, wow. Because they really couldn't do anything about it. And keep in mind, this is the summertime also. Oh, God. The fact that all these dead bodies were left in, in the July heat leads to the, uh, the ghostly tales of phantom smells in the area. And it's not the smell that you would think, but it smells of peppermint and vanilla. But why can they move them? I don't understand. Well, I mean, there's, I mean think about it. 50,000 people died in three days. There's bodies everywhere. Where are you going to put them? 
Well, I mean, it sounds bad to say put them in a heap, but still. I mean, I mean it's not going to make a bit of difference. I guess they can not. move them, but I, know, I, I mean, and, that, and I'm sure they didn't just lay right there. I mean, yeah. they probably did move them to the side or something. Mm, that but, sounds so sad. So the question's going to be. Wait, why were they smelling like peppermint and... <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Oh. Why were they smelling peppermint and vanilla? It's because... And, and people still smell that today. If they're, if you're in Gettysburg, people mm-hmm. still st- say they smell peppermint and vanilla. Well, according to local tales, the ladies would actually still have to walk down the, the street. They still had to conduct business. And they would have a handkerchief soaked in either vanilla or peppermint and hold it to their nose as they walked down the street to... Oh, can not you be able to smell that horrible smell oh, of death. Oh gosh, can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, it's like with the uh, when they do autopsies and mm-hmm. stuff like that, where they they put the, the that little like peppermint smell or whatever that little salve or whatever they yeah. use right underneath their nose to. Oh my lord! Gettysburg College uh, of Pennsylvania, as it was called back then, or it was Gettysburg College now, but it was it was College of Pennsylvania back then. Uh, they were caught right up in the middle of all this fighting. It was. Uh, actually used as a field hospital so when people would would get injured and stuff they used the college as the hospital okay and it provided shelter for the wounded and for the dying unfortunately it consisted of three brick buildings which was um, housing and classrooms for about 100 students at the time oh so not surprisingly there are several sightings of spirits at the school even today one of the most haunted buildings is the pennsylvania hall it's a beautiful building with white columns in the front of it, so it's got that majestic look to it. It was a dorm during this time, uh, but it's now offices. So oh. it's offices now, but it used to be dorms back then at the time. It's said that on certain nights that students and staff could actually see soldiers pacing back and forth on the dorm part of the building. Like if you mm-hmm. were down on the lower level, mm-hmm. you could look up and see people. Uh, pacing back and forth in oh. soldiers' uniforms. So, is there any like any of the buildings, original buildings, still there? Yeah, most of them are still there. Oh, yeah. So the description of, of the men sounded like sentries that would have been um, guards that were there for the safety of General Lee mm-hmm. during the time, and uh, or they would be used to deliver messages out to the field. Oh. One of the students actually reported that his roommate, who actually lived with the dorm about 50 yards away from uh, Pennsylvania Hall, saw a shadowy figure in the tower several nights in a row. Mm-hmm. Now, on another occasion, a figure has been seen uh, gesturing wildly to students below. That, and then when the students would yell up to him, thinking he was trapped or something like that, he actually disappeared. Oh. And then campus security actually checked out several times and never found anything so it's like just picture you're down on the ground you look up and you can see somebody like out on a balcony yeah in a soldier's uniform just like almost like in a panic so they were in a panic so they called campus security but nothing was ever found up wow. there wow that is sad yep so why is pennsylvania hall so haunted it's believed that many that the uh condition of the field hospital led to the great unrest of the dead mm. and you're going to actually hear how horrible that actually was. Because oh, according no. to records that were kept back then, blood sprayed the walls and the floor. Doctors operated without anesthesia. Keep in mind that back in the, this day, the preferred way of dealing with these type of bullet wounds and stuff was amputation. <gasps> so they were amputating people. Blood was spraying all over the walls, all over the floors. So all these people that were in there were in agony. Whether they died, whether they didn't die, they went through a lot. Well, I don't understand. Why couldn't they just take a bullet out? 
Well, I mean, they probably felt like if they just took the bullet out, I mean, these were muskets and, you know, different types of bullets. It's not like today. And they were primitive and, you know, surgery back in the 1860s or whatever this was. So That just seems like a harsh decision. Yeah, well, I mean, they also probably had to do something as quick as possible. Well, I mean, I get that. So outside of the operating room, there's actually an area where people would, uh, they could actually... I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. They knew they weren't going to be able to save them, so they just kind of left them to die. <gasps> so they, they had to move on and try they to gotta, save somebody they move else. On. So you had people out there just dying, mm. and so all that is all in this building. So oh, you, you know, can imagine. And yeah, and then the poor doctors, I mean, they had to live with that, even though they had to make the right decision as they went. But can you imagine having to say, okay, I'm sorry, you're just... Not gonna make it, so I'm. I can't imagine what it sounded like. No, I can't inside either. The, I mean, could you imagine how horrible it would be? All this agony going yeah. on, the moans, the oh, groans, the people yelling, screaming, no anesthesia. No, I can't imagine that. The best story, actually, from the Pennsylvania Hall involved um, two mentors of the college. Um, their the administration staff. They actually were working on the fourth floor. And they were leaving one night and stepped onto the elevator and hit the button for the first floor. Well, instead of the elevator stopping where it was supposed to on the first floor, it went all the way down to the basement. The doors opened, and they were standing in front of a horrific scene. The basement storage room had vanished, and now there was blood splattered all over the walls. It was an operating room from 1863. (sighs) These men were standing at this elevator. They're looking out on what should just be an average floor, and they're seeing wounded men lying there with doctors helping them all in their blood-splattered clothing. So all the guys on the elevator saw the same thing? There's two of them. There's only two guys. But they both saw the same thing. they're both standing there looking at this same thing. How, How horrifying. Right. And it was completely silent. Like, all this stuff was happening, Mm-hmm. But they couldn't hear anything. It was like they were watching a movie with the sound turned yeah. down. So they're hearing all this. There's no sound at all. And they could see all the chaos, couldn't hear anything, and they were stunned and horrified. They kept repeatedly pushing the elevator button, and eventually the doors closed, and it went up to the first floor and let them out, and everything was back to normal. That is the craziest crap I've ever heard. They said, though, before the doors actually closed, though, one of the doctors looked up and directly at the two employees as if they were asking and just kind of gave them a look as if he was asking for help. Both of the men continued to work in the building but uh, would only take the stairs from that point on. They would never take the elevator again. I think I'd be scared to take the steps. <laughs> now, that's that's basically the stories from Pennsylvania Hall. Uh-huh. Um, there's lots of battlefield stories, as you can imagine. Tons of supernatural uh, incidents. We've got uh, um, regular people just experiencing this stuff as they're out there. Because you can imagine a lot of people come to this place just because. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the so you got paranormal investigators that experience a lot. But you just got regular, everyday people like us that run up there and see stuff. So where the battlefield actually was, there are a number of private residences scattered kind of all over the whole area, right? Mm-hmm. and most are property of the Park Service now, because I told you that's part of the, the Park Service, and the, the forest rangers actually use them and in order to uh, keep them 
occupied and to keep them, you know, in good repairs, they have forest rangers actually stay there. Mm-hmm. So that's going to lead to some stories. Ooh, I wouldn't want to stay there. Nearly all of these homeowner homes were actually used as makeshift hospitals and shelters, mm-hmm. just like the Pennsylvania Hall was during this time. So not surprisingly, employees of the U.S. government, um, they're kind of reluctant to tell you stories about these kind of things because they work for the government. But there are a few people who uh, felt free to tell some stories, so we were able to get some of those things. And obviously the ones who do speak, they speak anonymously because they don't want to lose their jobs. Now, this, the first one we're going to talk about is the George uh, Wyckett House. It's uh, one of these houses. Obviously, the it's a small home, had several different occupants over the years. Many of, of the people who have lived there has got stories to tell, though. One previous resident said that a door on the second floor refused to stay closed even when it was nailed shut. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's not unusual for a door to keep coming open. Maybe you got an uneven well, house, yeah, but when you but nail it shut. Yeah, that's totally different. Other tenants reported the sound of footsteps uh, pacing back and forth in the attic area. They said that it was like a heavy pacing uh, over their heads as if someone was really nervous or in deep mm-hmm, thought. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to tell somebody's thoughts by the way they pace, but apparently these people could. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. They said they would go to the attic. And no matter how many times they went, there was never anybody up there. So that was one of the houses. There's another one place uh, called Hummel Ball, B-A-U-G-H. Mm-hmm. is another one of these houses, obviously. Stories there include cries of Confederate Brigade General William Barksdale, which he can still be heard on, on uh, certain nights out there. And he's got kind of a cool story on here. So it's one of these I kind of actually enjoyed reading about. He was wounded while he was... Uh, um, the charge of Seminary Ridge, and he, they brought him back to the house, okay? So according to an officer from the 148th uh, Pennsylvania Volunteers, Barksdale was the last seen lying in front of the house with a young boy giving him water with a spoon. Oh. It's a weird way to drink water. It is like, a weird way. He continued to call for water even though the boy was giving him water. So mm-hmm. he obviously was kind of starting to lose his yeah. his uh, his mind. And uh, it's almost like he didn't even realize that the boy was even there. Oh. So, in the years since, you could still hear Barksdale calling for water. Oh, no so That's one of the things that people hear. Another story is actually that his wife came uh, to, the, to the house for the burial. And she didn't like the fact that he was buried there on the property, so she came to have his body exhumed and moved to Mississippi, mm-hmm. where she was now living at. This is going to be sad. You're going to cry. Oh, no. Yeah, I already know. So she made the trip with the, with the general's favorite hunting dog. As they got close to the, the grave, the dog fell down and began to howl at the grave. Uh-huh. No matter what she did, she couldn't pull the dog away. Although the um, at night, the dog watched the grave all through the night. So even though she left and went back home, the dog stayed there all night long. It didn't leave the gravesite. No. The next day, she couldn't get the dog to budge from the grave, and she had to leave, and she already had the general's body. It was already loaded on the hearse. And so she had, you know, exhumed the body, and they, yeah. they had it on, on uh, the wagon and were taking it back to Mississippi, but the dog wouldn't leave where he was originally buried at. Aww. So she left the dog there. <gasps> she left yeah. him. She had to because the dog wouldn't leave with her. It wouldn't come with her. But the poor doggy didn't know. Well, but the dog remained... Uh, kind of a fixture right there in town for a little bit. People who lived close to it said that it would uh, 
Uh, they would come by and leave him water and food mm-hmm. so he would actually have something, but the dog wouldn't touch it. So the dog would occasionally let out a heartbreaking wail. And eventually the dog died of hunger and thirst, still sprawled out over top of the burial place of the general. Oh, my gosh. Yep. That is very sad. Now, within a few years, obviously, stories started circulating that the dog spirit was actually living there at uh, uh, Hummel Ball Farm. It's said that on July 2nd, which is the anniversary of Barksdale's death, that an unearthly howl can be heard echoing through the area. Wow. Now, that's a good doggy. Yeah. Baby. And you see those videos, like, on Facebook and, and stuff know, like that, where they'll they'll have these I know it. animals at the grave sites and stuff. And, and you really wonder if they're real. And they break my heart every time I see that because, man, I mean, I just can't believe, though, that that little dog didn't eat or drink or anything. I mean, I guess it, it could have a broken heart just like. Just like, yeah. Now, how it knew that was. That is bizarre. His owner there, yeah, I mean. Think he would, I mean, I know he's a dog, but I guess you'd think he'd realize that he's really not there anymore. I don't know. I guess that sounds dumb to say, but. Yeah, I don't think. seemed him, I mean, you think, I, guess, I don't know. think I'm he, just, like, read the tombstone. That's how I knew he was no, there No, that's not what I mean. I guess I was thinking <laughs> more like maybe he saw them exhume him or something. And I don't know. I'm talking crazy. That's okay. I love you. I mean, I love you, too. I just feel so bad. I feel bad for these animals that miss their owners so I know much. you just want to hug all of them. Oh, <laughs> I do, because it's so sad. Rose Farm is another one of these houses. Uh, it's a haunted location right there. Now, during the battle, it was used as a hospital like the other ones, but it was also a burial ground. Hundreds of Confederate soldiers in rows all around the house of the property were buried there in, like, neat rows. Mm-hmm. They were exhumed in November of 1863, but the claiming of the bodies and reburials actually continued for years after that. Why? I guess because not everybody knew who they were. They just, I guess they dug them up because they didn't need to be there. They buried them in haste. And oh. then, uh, but I guess finding the rightful owners to the bodies. God, that would be so hard. How would you even begin to start to do that? I don't know, because I guarantee they didn't have dental records back then. No, uh-uh. Did I tell you somebody actually sent me... Um, we talked about the one thing about, you know, mm-hmm. how they know who your dentists are mm-hmm. if they don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Somebody actually sent me the complete guidelines of how they determine who somebody is by their dental records. Oh, wow. Yeah, I need to post that on the, uh, the Facebook page. But it actually is like a um, process of elimination. That, you God, got so many, so many people who've had a missing molar and a, and a gold tooth. And, and then they start narrowing all this stuff down. It actually is a process to it. I mean, how long would that take? I don't know. But, but everybody, y'all would know me. Yeah. I got my UK on my Yeah, tooth. that would be, unless somebody pulled that tooth. Oh, nobody of, would. Well, a murderer would. Why? Because if, if they knew that was an identifying object, they would probably try to take that out. Oh, that's true. Okay. so now I don't uh, feel safe at all. I'd just pull everybody's teeth if I killed them. You're not going to kill nobody. But if I did, now I'm sounding like OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, here's how I would have done it. Anyways. That's crazy. They got thumbprints. They can still tell. (laughs) So according to Dr. JWC, one of the daughters uh, of the Rose Farm actually went insane during the exhumation. So when they were digging up all these bodies, Uh one of the daughters of Rose Farm actually went, went, uh, I don't want to say crazy because people get offended by that, but she went uh, uh, loony. That's probably no better. No, but well, I mean, why did she do that now? I guess 
because they were exhuming all these bodies. I guess they used to somebody digging up 100 bodies on you your know, property. That would mess with your head. But uh, supposedly, she said that she saw blood actually flowing through the walls of the house. Ooh. That's some Amityville stuff there. Yeah. I was going to say shit, but somebody told us to watch our language. So. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. We apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though well, we, but we got an itunes review and it was uh somebody and we're not we're just playing with you so don't take offense to it but um they said that they heard about us from the girls from and that's why we drink and then they it said that they really enjoyed the show and she added a ps watch it watch the language and i'm imagining because i think she listens to it with her daughter on the way to lacrosse oh, practice yeah, yeah but i just think it's funny that she got it from from Got us from and that's why we drink and they say the f word like every other word. <laughs> but she t- but she told us to watch our language. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, it is, and I guess I've been crude somewhere along the way too. I don't know where I've been crude. <laughs> that's but... a different. We're not going to talk about that one. Oh, that one's not funny. Oh, <laughs> we get all kinds of iTunes reviews. So, but they're all good. And I love y'all. Okay, they're not all good. Anyways, uh, so let's get back to Rose Farm. So she went crazy. So there was there was um, blood flowing through the house. She said that there was a man working at Rose Farm a few weeks after the battle uh, had actually happened. He returned home one evening and just a little past dark. He claimed that he could look out to where the, the bodies out there were, not you know where the actual bodies were buried at. Mm-hmm. And he said that you could see a strange glowing shape appear right by the graves of the soldier. Oh, wow. So let me ask you this. Did, the, did she see the blood? Through the walls after they started to exhume the bodies, or yes. did she did? Yeah, that was after the fact. Wow. Now he saw he saw this glowing shape out there before they exhumed the bodies. Just a couple of weeks after. Oh the, wow! Because this was like July when they buried them, and it was November before they dug the bodies up. So they were out there for about four months. Man. I can't imagine the shape of those bodies. Yeah, I can't imagine having to be the ones to dig them up. Now there's also a bunch of sightings besides the houses out there on the actual battlefield, just in the open field. Uh, there are numerous reports of uh, apparitions of phantom soldiers seen kind of marching in formation as if they would have back then. They're either riding horses and in some cases actually still fighting. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, I know they're I know they're dead. I get it. But they just don't want to cross over or. Well, I mean, some people will say that's probably more of a residual effect uh-huh. that has nothing to do with actual ghosts. It's just that. Sometimes places can suck up the energy of an event to where the event just keeps replaying and replaying. Uh-huh. And it's more of uh, like watching a movie than actual seeing oh, ghosts. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. These ghosts can actually be seen where uh, Pickett's charge took place, which is around Little little Round Top, uh, the Peach Orchard, and the Wheat Field, as well as many other places. Which brings us to our next point in this story, because the highest amount of sightings uh, these strange experiences at a place called Devil's Den. It just sounds like it'd be a place for. Yeah. It's a triangular field where electronic equipment and cameras uh, seldom work. That's always a good sign. Mm-hmm. There's something going on. Uh, this is where all the soldiers are seen the most uh, in a park called the Valley of Death. That doesn't sound fun. Yeah, the Valley of Death and Devil's Den. That's yeah. just uh, that's right there. So the ghosts are not only seen here, they're also heard here. So, in some places where they don't hear much, yeah. you actually hear stuff here. So, let's talk about Devil's Den. The event that started this whole legend of Devil's Den was the fighting that took place on uh, July 2nd, 1863. Why is all this stuff happening in July? Because it was a three-day period. Remember, all this happened in the three-day oh, period. that's true. That's true. 
So this place, however, had stories way before the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm. The name Devil's Den actually came before the battle, and legend has it that it was a Native American hunting ground for centuries, and uh, a huge battle was actually fought there called the Battle of Crows. Many people died there. And this was back between, Mm -hmm. uh, this was basically a Native American um, battle back then. So this actually had nothing to do with the Civil War. Oh, a Gettysburg uh, writer in actual 1880 wrote, wrote that there were many unnatural and supernatural sights and sounds mm-hmm. in this area. It was reported that the area around Round Top and Indian Fields was kind of the hot spot. He wrote that earthly settlers claimed that to see ghosts and they would hear Indian war whoops. You know, woo 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 woo. Like, woo woo woo. Like, 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 yes, like Indian chants and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, he reported that, that there were several Indian ceremonies would actually mm-hmm. happen in that area right there. Now, how the area got its name is kind of a mystery. Many think that um, strange atmosphere at the place kind of led people to just start calling it Devil's Den just because of the, they said there's a thickness that when you walk in the area, it just, it just, it just feels, feels thick. It feels, feels dark and deep, mm-hmm. and that might be how it got it. Another legend actually said that it was infested with snakes. Oh, hell no. And one particular snake was actually gigantic. It was kind of huge. Uh, all these hunters were trying to capture it. They couldn't, and it ran into Devil's Den and was never caught, and they named it Devil. It was the name of the snake. So when it got lost up in, De- in, in the den, they just started calling it Devil's Den. Did they ever see that snake again after it went know. to Devil's Den? I don't know. Well, they just never caught it, so yeah. I'm sure they probably did. Ooh. Now, most everybody... In their letters that actually during the time that we've been there, when they would write home, they would like talk about Devil's Den. They would refer to about how the rocks were shaped and how it was a desolate and a ghostly type place. And this mm-hmm. was before the Civil War. Uh, they mentioned ominous characters of the rocks that just mm-hmm. looking at the rocks that had shapes that just made you think. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Which it kind of reminds me of the place we did in California, uh, Devil's Gate, because they named that mm-hmm. because of the shape of the rock. In uh, 1884, Bushman, who was actually the Civil War writer we were talking about earlier, he wrote that there was an ancient tribe that once lived near there. He thought that the scattering of the boulders were actually like part of a tall pyramid mm-hmm. that had been taken apart, that they had built somehow, some way, and then dismantled it. Oh. He said that the crevice and the, the rocks were evidence that a pyramid was destroyed by some kind of a forceful blast. Mm-hmm. But that's just his opinion. Yeah. It's doubtful because... Um, you know, there's just the kind of lore that goes with the area would, you know, it sounds good, but it would be almost impossible for there to be any kind of forceful blast that would create what he's trying to right. say. Right. That's going to say that would be almost like a miracle. So regardless of how it got its name, it's obvious that it had a reputation before the battle and that reputation would only become more fearsome in, in the years to follow mm-hmm. because of the battle. Wow. That's the, so interesting. The battle here was actually one of the worst. Many of the soldiers would stand in guard at nighttime um, would re- report kind of a macabre and unnerving feeling. So this is before anything really started. But they, they felt something out there. Yeah. Much like, the I guess, the previous people. Days later, the feds actually came into town again, which is like, just like the ones that came to town and, and put stuff, forced it into Gettysburg, the city. They were actually stunned at the death and the blood that was all over the rocks. 
Oh, on the rocks. Yeah, all over the rock. Because this is just a big rocky area. Oh, wow. Bodies with leaves and grass were stuck in their wounds. Oh, man. Just from, you know, just rolling around and stuff like that. So you get all these dead bodies laying around. And then the rain began to fall for several hours. These bloated bodies were now basically drenched and decaying and beyond recognition. Oh, man. Nobody knows exactly how long the bodies laid at Devil's Den unburied, but it was for days. And uh, it's even possible a few weeks before it got buried. So what did they end up doing with him, though? I mean, did they just, like, bury him on the spot? Many of them weren't buried at all, but just kind of thrown in the crevice. Oh, gosh. But, yeah, most of them were kind of buried on the spot. Devil's Den started shortly the you know the stories started kind of shortly mm-hmm. after that that's when all the everything really became ramped up on it local legend says that two hunters wandered around on the battlefield and they got lost in the woods uh near rock ridge that the name of the, the rock ridge wasn't that the name of the city in uh, uh blazing saddles i think that I was the, i think it was. it was yeah but they said they uh they were kind of wandering around they got lost they had completely lost their way when they looked up and they saw um, kind of a dim figure of a man standing on the uh, the boulders up there. Mm-hmm. And he said he kind of gestured with one hand and started pointing away. And the hunters realized that he was actually telling them the way they needed to go. Oh. So they started going the right way. They looked back to try to, you know, thank him or something, and mm-hmm. the apparition was completely gone. Oh, wow. But he did put them on the right path. Good for him. Even people that are skeptical of ghost stories in Gettysburg admit that there's always stories about Devil's Den. Yeah. So they don't even have to be Gettysburg story. They just know that there's stories about Devil's Den regardless. One action, afternoon in the 1970s, a woman actually went to the National Park Service office, and uh, she asked if there had been any ghosts uh, actually on the battlefield, which you would think would be an odd question, but yeah. they get it a lot. And uh, although the official position of the uh, Park Service is neither to confirm nor deny ghosts in the area. The ranger was actually curious, and he asked why. Mm -hmm. And she said that she'd been out there taking pics, and uh, she said she stepped uh, over at the Devil's Den, and she got out of her car. She got some uh, really cool photos in the early early morning light. So she walks onto the field with the smaller smaller boulders out there, which are kind of scattered in the front of the Devil's Den itself, she paused to, to snap the picture, and she said when she raised the camera to her eye, she kind of sensed an uncomfortable feeling like somebody's standing yeah. right next to you. Mm-hmm. And she actually said she turned around, and there was a man that was standing right really close to her and had approached her. Mm-hmm. She said he looked like a hippie. He had long, uh, dirty hair, kind of ragged clothes, and a big floppy hat with no shoes on. Oh, wow. She said he looked at her and asked what she was looking for. Uh, over there and he kind of pointed behind her uh-huh. and she said she turned her head just for a second to look to see what he was pointing to and when she looked back he had completely vanished no trace anywhere oh my gosh so a month later the same ranger was actually working a desk and another photographer came in and, and he asked almost the exact same question this time though the man said that he had been out there taking pictures a month before and that he had an image of a man show up in one of the pictures that was in the scene, but when he took the picture, there was no no man in it. But the man was in the picture once it got developed. Oh. He said that he was hippie-looking, <gasps> dirty long hair, 
old clothes. And what stood out the most is that the man was wearing no shoes. Well, so I wonder if that lady had any pictures on her camera after the fact. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. So who was this guy? Well, here's the speculation. During the war, many of the uh, Confederate soldiers that fought in Devil's Den were from Texas. Mm-hmm. Now, Texas was America's most um, kind of remote frontier at this time. So most of the Texas men didn't receive their packages from home uh, like some of the other places that were closer. So it was not unusual for the people from Texas to have not gotten any clean clothes, and most of them didn't receive any shoes. So they did look dirtier mm-hmm. and longer hair and all this because they never got their care packages that had their new clothes and their shoes oh. and all that from home because it was so far away from where this was. You remember, Gettysburg's in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Texas is pretty far, far away. away. yeah. So it takes a while back in the 1800s oh, gosh, for stuff to get imagine. to you. I mean, they didn't have UPS and FedEx and, <laughs> and all that stuff. So the people that were, you know, from the south and stuff, they were able to get their stuff pretty quick. Yeah. But, but the guys from Texas were kind of left without. So it was not unusual for them to be on the battlefield with no shoes and dirty mm-hmm. clothes because they were limited on what they had. Oh, wow. But I wonder why they disappeared like that. I don't know. But... uh since the 1970s, someone fitting this description has been seen several times in and around the rocks of Devil's Den. Oh, that would be cool to see him. Yep, it would be. A um, number of people have mistaken him as a Civil War reenactor and have even asked for him to pose with pictures with them. Oh, wow. Yep. They go home and develop the film, and he's not in the picture. That is crazy. Yeah, that, that would be very cool to go yeah, up and ask no, somebody. Yeah, would be. Have you take a selfie with me? Yeah. Other reports in the area insist that ghostly riders on horseback have been seen, uh, and then they just vanish. Mm. Sounds of gunfire and men shooting, uh, which cannot be explained. Dozens of photographs, which seem to show signs of the supernatural, have all happened. Now, here's a quick story that I thought was really cool. Gettysburg, 1993. Uh, there was a movie called Gettysburg. It had Jeff Daniels in it from Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in the movie. They were filming there, and they actually filmed on the actual battlefield. Oh, how interesting. So there was a, a, a stretch to where one day there was, uh, I guess, a break in the action. So some of the people that were on the set, Jeff Daniels wouldn't want them, but it's just some people that were playing the part of the soldiers, they decided that they were going to take a break, and they are just kind of lounging around the area. So... They were all extras and stuff like that. but So they're relaxing on Little Round Top. They heard a rustling in the trees. And then they were kind of startled because an old man that looked like a Union private, he was wearing a Union private uniform, actually walked up on him. He's filthy. He smelt of sulfur. And for those of you who don't know, sulfur was actually a key ingredient in the black gunpowder that they yeah. used during the Civil War. So he walked out, and he looked at him, and he said, uh, rough one today, eh, boys? And uh, he gave him a handful of musket rounds that he had, and then uh, he walked off. Did they but, say anything back to him, I wonder? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think they really thought about it. You know, he just it, was, it happened mm-hmm. so quick. Now, the actors actually noticed that what he gave them didn't look like the musket rounds that they had they been have, given yeah. on, on, the, on the set. So they went to the head of the props department. And in, uh, they showed it to him, and he said, no, I didn't issue those. Mm-hmm. And then they later went into the city, and they had them checked out by somebody that was uh, a Civil War expert in the area. 
And he actually, they were actually surprised to find out that they were authentic musket rounds that actually dated from the time of the battle. Oh my gosh. So this actually happened on the set of the movie. How cool is that? It was filmed there. So, and, and there was lots of people that claimed this happened. I think it was several extras that were there. That is cool. So that is our story on Gettysburg. That's so what do you think? A, that was really good. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was really fascinating. So. Yeah, it sure was. I didn't pay attention very good in my history class, I don't guess. No. I, I know. I was waiting for you to ask why they didn't take pictures of their cell phones well, back then. Well, I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> that was a good, good story. I really like that. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, we finally gave in and did it. Like, I wish like we I could go there. See if we can well, it's not that far. I know. Well, we should go I'm there. I'm sure Dana's probably got plenty of stories she could tell us from there. Oh, my gosh. We should really go there and experience it ourselves. That's what we'll do. We'll hook up with Dana from Twisted Philly. Okay. And we'll make a field trip to uh, Gettysburg. Man, I am so down for that. That would be great. And, and, you know, honestly, I've not had any interest in Gettysburg at all until we did this story. And now it's like I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just not a Civil War type person. I'm mm-hmm. not in that. A lot of guys are in the war. World yeah. War II or the Civil War. I'm, I'm just not in yeah. all that stuff. I just feel so. so bad for them, what they had to go through. Yeah, that was, I mean, when you start looking at details of yeah. anything, not just the, not just like this, but mm-hmm. just in the times, what mm-hmm. happened in, in some of these mental institutions and yeah. what happened in medical uh, practices, period, yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine living in the Wild West and, mm-hmm. you know, your anesthesia is drink some whiskey and bite down on this stick yeah, yeah stick while I cut this out of your body with no anesthesia. I mean, it's couldn't imagine. That's real men back then, let me tell you. I guess, or just not having a choice. Yeah. Well, God bless them all, for sure. So anyway, that's our story on Gettysburg. Um, next week's story I'm still working on, but I think we're going to do the... Uh, I'm not going to tell you because as soon as I do, I'll change it. And then people will be, I thought you were doing. But uh, I've got a cool story worked up for you next week. We have um, a local story for you Patreon supporters on the 15th. I've got a true crime slash demonic possession story all in one. Mm. And it's a a local story from Louisville from back in the... uh, uh, early 2000s mm-hmm. that uh, it's a fascinating story I've been talking about doing it at least in my head I might not talk to y'all about it but I've been wanting to do it forever I couldn't decide whether I want to do it on the main show or on the Patreon show and I decided I was going to do it on the Patreon show um, so hey if you guys are interested in that story which I think you'll be fascinated with because how many times does somebody get to go into a courtroom in a murder case and use demonic possession as your defense that's, yeah, that's it's true. a it's a fascinating story, and this story's been on Dateline, it's been on Snapped, it's yep. been on. So I mean, it, it, it's it's a huge story. It's not just a, a local little yeah. little flare, but uh, yeah, just sign up for the five dollar Patreon if you want to get these. And there's heck, we've done what four or five of those already, and mm-hmm. then we've got all the listeners. So you get like ten or eleven episodes yeah. plus all these minis, and you get a chance to win free T shirts and discounts on uh, merchandise. You can you know maybe get like a shower curtain or something. <laughs> With a, uh, well, you're really pushing that shower curtain, aren't you? <laughs> you can get a, a comforter, a Hillbilly Horror Stories comforter, too. What better way to, to cover up at night and feel warm and secure than having our logo draped across your body? Well, hey. So, anyway, That's... just a thought. <laughs> so, let's go ahead and uh, let's play this uh, interview I had with Fritz Zimmerman. I, I think you guys... You may on the surface say, oh, my God, he's going to talk about giants. And mm. I'm telling you, 
This is way more fascinating than you would imagine on the surface. And when you get through listening, I promise you, some of you will be looking up Fritz Zimmerman on the internet to find out more. I can, I can guarantee it. So I know I was in the same boat. So let's take a listen to Fritz Zimmerman. All right. If you guys listen to very many paranormal shows, and I know a lot of you do, you've heard this gentleman uh, make his way around, and I'm completely fascinated as to what he talks about, especially because it's uh, a lot of it is in the area that I live in. And uh, without hearing him speak, I wouldn't have known any of this uh, even existed or any of the thought processes behind it. Uh, please welcome to the show, author Fritz Zimmerman. Fritz, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you tonight. Now, now Fritz, you've got um, several books out on this topic, and... What you have enlightened me to, as well as, as, as hundreds of thousands of listeners around the world, is the fact that giants actually existed here in the United States and even more localized uh, in the Ohio Valley where, where I'm living at right now. Tell me a little bit about how you got started on the this whole giant discovery process and uh, how that led you to actually write some books on the topic. Well, like most things, it was completely by accident. Um, I have a double degree from Purdue in radio, television, communications, and history. And I had a production company, and I had a show on television called The Used Car Buffet. No image for that, but it was a great show. <laughs> and uh, my partner left, and so I was looking for um, something to shoot a short historical documentary on. And... Even though I'm a degreed person, um, I knew nothing about burial mounds. Nothing about them. And found that uh, Northeast Indiana had a bunch of them. I thought it would be fascinating to go out, find them, photograph them, and, you know, show this little piece of history that nobody seems to know about. And in doing so, I started coming across giants. Well, where I live here in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, uh, we have the second largest genealogical library in the country. So I have county histories from everywhere. I mean, I have all your county histories in Kentucky, Ohio, you name the state, they're all there. So in doing the research and, you know, expanding my search, I kept finding the giants. Well, what turned out to be a three-month project turned out to be a 13-year project. <laughs> wow. Thank um, I investigated over 700 mound and earthwork sites in Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Michigan. Um, my mound guide is by far the most thorough and comprehensive of everything that is out there. And so I put all the giants together, and, you know, I could have put a list and a book out on just the list of giants, which is normally what you'll buy if you buy a giant book, it's a list. Um, but it was finding out who these people were where they came from, that was what took probably an extra four years before I released the Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels, in the Ohio Valley. So let me ask you this real quick. So, because like I said, I'm a novice of this. Had I not listened to you before, I wouldn't have known any of this. Explain to people what a burial mound actually is. Well, a burial mound, you know, as the name sounds, has burials on it. Some burial mounds are 30 or 40 foot high, and they only have one guy in it. Or they may have 10 or 15 people in it. 
Um, so you never really know just by looking at it how many people are, are found within. Um, but the interesting aspect of the mound builders' religion, they believe in ancestral worship. So they would go to the burial mounds and they would pray to their ancestors. Um, so not to a single person, maybe that they knew was in the mound, but they would pray to this collective of the dead for good fortune. So they're burial mounds, but in some ways they're also uh, spiritual centers. So just to the average person looking, how would I know that I'm looking at something that's not just a hill or not? How would I know that a burial mound is what I'm looking at? Is there is there a certain aspect of them that are kind of the same that stand out to you, or are they all kind of different in their own right? No, they're all they're, they're very much the same in shape. Um, Adena mounds, where you'll find most of the giants, are conical. Um, the largest is 70 foot. I mean, that's the biggest one, which is Moundsville, West Virginia. Um, so they're not going to be any bigger than that. But the real telltale, if, you know, you're out there and you think you might have found a burial mound, if you go on top and that bottom is not a perfect circle, that's not a burial mound. That doesn't mean there might be people buried in a glacial cane or something like that, but it's not a man-made mound. But that's the key. I mean, it has to be perfectly round on the bottom. And that's how you tell. Oh, wow. And most the clients are going to be 5 foot, 7 foot, 8 foot. I mean, that's the most common that you're going to find out there. And about 35 to 50 foot diameter. Now, on these burial mounds, I know you said sometimes uh, certain types of ones you'll find giants in. What are if it's one that doesn't have giants in it, what type of people or, or religion would usually use those type of mounds that aren't giant-based? Well, in the Ohio Valley, they have the Adena and the Hopewell. Um, now, down in Kentucky, where you are, I mean, that's all Adena. That's all Adena down there. Um, but in the lower Ohio Valley and then getting over to some parts of southern Indiana, Illinois, parts of Missouri, and then all the way down to Florida. Those are the Hopewell, and those are affiliated with the Dakota Sioux and the Cherokee Indians would be the lineage of, of those. But, I mean, some of the skeletons in there are large, where you're going to find seven-footers, but you're not going to find any of the nine-footers that you would get in the Ohio Valley. And their roots are back with the biblical Amorites. Okay. And that's important to bring up. You know, when we started off this conversation, we started talking about giants. I can only imagine, like I did, that most people in their, their head, they're thinking Jack and the Beanstalk giants, or they're thinking the Jolly Green giant. But when, when you talk about giants, they're more, like you said, they're more towards a seven and nine foot tall type person going up to how, t how tall would you say some of the biggest were? Um, in Muskegon County, Ohio, there was a burial mound where four, um, skeletons were all about nine and a half foot, and those were the largest documented. So if you see something with giants that are 12 foot or 15 foot, that's bogus. That didn't happen. The largest is nine and a half foot, but nine and a half foot is incredible. I mean, in size. 
I mean, there's nothing um, modern that compares with that. But nine and a half foot is the largest foot I've documented. And now, what's interesting is, is this Muskegon County, they dug into this mound, and the people that dug into it actually, like, signed a paper and had it notarized that on this day we witnessed this and these measurements were taken, and it ended up in their county history. So very well documented that those skeletons were that large. So where did these... Were this races of people, or was there these, you know, maybe a few of the leaders that just happened to be bigger? Or was this, you know, you hear the stories about the Amazons and stuff like that. Is is that more or less what you found this is? this is? Are they races of people or just individuals that were rare? Um, you know, I mean, you don't find 100% where they were huge. Um, so it might have been a nobility class that were the largest, that bred big, big women with big men. Um, but as a general race, they were tall. So, I mean, yeah, there were some that were really big, but they were all, you know, generally tall, you know, six-footers and, you know, about that size. But um, more of a race of, because um, in the Bible they say the accounted rate of giants when they were talking about the uh, Amorites. So are there any kind of distinguishing details other than the fact that these uh, skeletal remains were tall? Are there any other types of details that stand out about them? Are they all pretty much the same, or are each one of the, are there different types of giants? No, because their uh, skull types were more upper Paleolithic, um, so they weren't modern skulls. They had more of a bulging uh, brow ridge. They had massive jaws. Um in some cases, the uh, forehead sloped back uh, more than modern. Um, there's an earlier race that we won't go into that almost has like Neanderthal skulls. Like half of the giants I have in my encyclopedia of ancient giants were more Neanderthal. I mean, their forehead went straight back and huge rollick. And so that was early on. That's around 5,000 BC. The Amorites show up around. 2000 BC, 2500 BC, when they start mining the copper out of uh, Isle Royal and shipping it back to uh, Babylon. But then they come in mass around 1500 BC. So I know you, you, you speak a lot about the area from Michigan on down to Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia. Are, are any of these found out west at all, or are they all pretty much in this area? Well, there's large skeletons down, um, you know, across the North America, more so on the coastal regions, the Great Lakes regions, those are all part of the maritime archaic, that is the 5,000 BC group, and then those in the Ohio Valley, those are the Amorites, and those are distinguished by the conical mounds, with either a uh, ditch or an earthwork going around them, surrounding the uh, burial mound, and associated with the hinges or solar temples. Um, the earthworks that were made in the Ohio Valley um, used advanced mathematics of uh, knowing square roots, how to square a circle, pi, uh, Pythagorean's triangles, um, all this math that happened to have been developed by the Amorites who controlled Babylon from 2000 B.C. to 1600 B.C. Wow. And, and you know, 
I know I keep jumping all over the place, but are these found all over the world as well, or do we have as much research on the ones found at other uh, other countries besides the U.S.? Um, no, the other concentration of conical burial mounds with circles around them and hinges is in England. But it's also in England where the tin mines are found. And to make bronze, you need a copper and you need tin. So the amorites that spread into England to exploit the tin mines and then eventually get over here and exploit the uh, copper. Now, the copper that was pulled out, in case somebody doesn't know, um, 500,000 tons are missing out of Isle Royale. And it would have taken 10,000 men working a 1,000 years to extract that amount of copper. So we're talking about a pretty massive... Um, exploitation of mineral resources here in uh, North America. Wow, that's kind of incredible. That's a lot of copper. It's a lot of copper. And it's missing because in the burial mounds, you might find some copper bracelets and copper rings and, you know, a little of this and a little of that, but nothing you compare to the amount of copper that was extracted. With mining techniques that are identical to what you would have found in the Mediterranean region. Now, in some of these burial mounds, I've heard you talk about before that um, when they actually dig it up and get down in there, some of these uh, bodies are arranged in certain specific um, ways to due to the religion. Am I correct on that? Uh, yes, there's a there's a lot of them that were put in a spoke position, and this is where either the feet or the head would come out of a central hub like, you know, like spokes on a wheel. Um, that's just a solar symbol. Um, it's interesting that usually when they have that, um, there's a couple of them that'll have their heads placed between their knees. So I believe that these are probably um, some kind of slave or someone that was conquered in battle that they would serve um, the dead that they were buried with. Oh. So is... Aside from these, obviously, if these are, are like religious burials, and, and uh, there's got to be, I would think, cases where people have maybe put curses on these things, or if they are dug up, or um, just super amount of paranormal activity around these things. Is is that something uh, like these burial mounds? Is this something like a lot of ghost hunters and stuff like that go to to try to pick up on on uh, activity? No, no ghost hunters that I'm aware of have gone to, to these sites, but um, personally, I've seen shadow people, um, disembodied voices, um, so I've seen some crazy things in the field. Um, I wasn't actually into the paranormal when I was doing the field work, so kind of glad because I would have probably been a lot more spooked about the whole thing, um, but... The burial moms, in the book of Enoch, it says of these giants that their spirits will be earthbound. And I did a study, and I my two favorite paranormal shows are the Dead Files and Ghost Adventures. So if anything's legit, I guess those are about as close as they can get. You know, a little bit of a question mark with Ghost Adventures because, you know, they do take <laughs> some of their stuff. Right. But I, I took a map of every show and the location of where they were at. And I also did that with the dead files. And their show frequencies where the giants are in Ohio, uh, Michigan, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York, 
that's their hot spot. So their hot spots of paranormal activity coincides perfectly where the giants and the burial mounds were found. Wow. And I and did I understand correctly that there's like a huge um, a huge burial mound right outside of a prison in West Virginia? Am I right on that? Yeah, the largest burial mound in the Ohio Valley is at Grave Creek, and that's Nonville Prison. And this burial mound is in its front lawn. And burial mounds were made to be portals for the dead to come in and out of. So they're gateways. So isn't it odd that what is ranked as one of the most common places in America has the largest burial mound in front of it, and that's not by coincidence. And that's another thing that, you know, when people go to Moundsville Prison, they think, you know, they're they're talking to dead prisoners, and it's like, you know, that may not be the case. <laughs> I mean, there's demons and all sorts of things coming through that window, and so... You know, you're not talking to some guy that hung himself or was killed in prison or murdered or whatever. You don't know. You don't know what's coming through that gate, but whatever's come through is who you're going to run into. And that's the way it is with any of the burial mounds that still send out energy fields. Um, I've been with people with um, witchy sticks or divining rods, and they go crazy on a burial mound. They'll point right at it. And from a distance, too. So, they're still packed full of energy. Um, if you're a sensitive um, to paranormal, you'll immediately know if you go to a burial mound um, that that energy is there. But they are still active and uh, still conduits um, creating paranormal activity today. Tell me a little bit about the books that you've written and and how one led to the other? Well, the, the first few that took so long was um, the Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. And in that, I go into a lot of detail and provide a lot of evidence of how the Amorites um, traveled west in search of copper, Isle St. Royal, ended up in England, you know, etymology place names, uh, burial types, megaliths, skull types, um, the weekend match mound types, skull types, um, hinges from England over here. It's all absolutely identical. Um, and then, of course, there was a list of, you know, the giants that I found. A lot of giants over in England, you know, have been chronicled within those burial mounds. And then the travel guide, and that was, that was 13 years of solid field work. And... If you go to Ohio um, to see the mounds and you just have, you know, a general guide or go on the Internet, for every mound you see, you'll pass by three. Because in Ohio, some of the largest mounds are address-restricted. You know, and these are the size of two- and three-story buildings sitting out on a field. Um, but because they're address-restricted, nobody knows about them, which I thought was ridiculous. And so I gave directions to all those sites. So the photograph, you get the histories, you get directions. So when you go, you'll see pretty much everything that the uh, state has to offer. And then um, when I was doing this, it was old school. I was going through books, but as time went by, more and more, um, not county histories, because I had uh, 
you know, I had access to those, but newspaper reports, which led to the Encyclopedia of Ancient Giants in North America, and in that I have just short of 900 historical accounts of giants. And again, it's not a list, so you'll get the uh, full details of the Maritime Archaic and uh, the ties to Northern Europe, and then um, the, the Neanderthal hybrids, and then uh, a lot of other things do of how the Dakota uh, uh, Sioux um, were part of the uh, Hopewell Mound Builders. And uh, so a lot of evidence is included in the books. And then I just came out with Mysteries of Ancient America, Uncovering the Forbidden. And that's just a lot of the crazy things that I found along the way, uh, uh, reports of ancient canals along the Mississippi, 70 miles of canals in Missouri, Ancient cities were described with uh, streets laid out in perfect grids. Um, just some interesting stuff that uh, I had enough information to get a book out. I know you do a lot of investigating to come up with the stories that are in the books, but you also do some traveling and, and, and actually investigate these, these mounds up close and personal, correct? Well, yeah, I've been to, yeah, I've been to every site. At every mound site that, that uh, described in book. What do you do when you get to a mound? Walk me through uh, what, like, uh, like if you're going to investigate one certain mound, wherever it may be, and you first show up to the site, how long are you there? What are you looking for? Kind of give me an idea of what kind of research you do on site. Um, generally, um, you know, doing what I would do, my directions would be um, a township, um, a township uh, uh, section number, and then it say may say on the J. Reynolds property in Liberty Township, section one in the northwest quarter of the northeast quarter of this section one was a burial mound. So sometimes I would get it isolated to an eighth of a mile, sometimes to a quarter, and sometimes to a half mile. It's big. I mean, it's a lot of area to have to cover banging on doors, trying to get access to the property. Um, you know, so it was somewhat involved just to even get on the property. But um, generally in the landscape, you would see it because it would just be this round 35, 50 foot, four or five foot high burial mound. Of course, you always get on top, not good to walk on the mound. But for me, I needed to make sure, just to make sure that bottom was round. Um, you know, I... In searching out so many burial mounds, um, you know, I really didn't have a lot of time to, you know, stick around and, you know, do some things. I mean, later on, I'd always look for springs and some other things, um, you know, if I could. But um, mm -hmm. to the travel guy, just the, you know, sheer numbers of sites that I had to get to, it was go find it, get access to the property, you know, get your photos, and then get in the car and head to the next. So, um, I was never, and I was, you know, not that interested in paranormal um, when I first started this, but we always used to say, um, you know, mention the energy. I mean, from the very get-go of doing that, you know, um, there was a couple friends that would go with me, and they'd always say, it's like, yeah, it's like when you're around those mountains, it's like there's a, an energy field or something that's coming out of it. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, you're not the first one to, to mention that. And, you know, 
you know, I agree with that. I kind of feel it myself. So, um, so next, you know, I did want to go back. I was thinking about a book called Ancient Paranormal and more of a paranormal guide to these sites. But of course, you can use my travel guide, you know, for that. But I've really been deterred from doing that by so many people of that you don't want to go to these sites. You don't know what you're going to conjure up. You know, the giants are associated with the Nephilim, which is the dark side. And that if I go, I'm going to be conjuring up demons. So more than one person has just implored me not to um, go to the sites and practice divination, which, you know, what ghost hunters do when you're conjuring a spirit. That's uh, divination. And uh, so, I don't know, I'm kind of up in the air. I have three books that I'm working on right now. So I kind of put that as the uh, fourth. But uh, I'd be interesting to see uh, paranormal um, groups go out there just to see what see what they see what happens. But uh, you know, it might not be good. Why do, Why do you think that nobody does do that? I mean, if if it's kind of known, you've you've put the word out there, and I'm sure there's some others that there's activity at these things. Obviously, people went out there with the divining rods and all that stuff. Why do you think there are, that more of these investigations hadn't taken place on burial mounds? I don't think people know about it. And only when I did Mysterious Radio a couple months ago was the first time that I even mentioned burial mounds as paranormal um, activity sites. So um, I've kind of kept that on the hush of what's on, what's out there. So just in the last couple um, months have I kind of revealed that, you know, there's paranormal activity because I've seen it. You know, I've seen shadow people. Um, I saw shadow people at Fort Hill. Um, I was at a graveyard across from Point Pleasant where Mothman is. Of course, yeah. I didn't even know. When I went, I didn't know what Mothman was. <laughs> But um, I was across the river in the cemetery in Gallipolis that was on this really high bluff and it overlooks the Kanawha River. The Kanawha River, by the way, is what the Shawnee called the River of Evil Spirits. And they refused to even live in West Virginia because they thought it was so haunted. Um, but yeah, I was up there and uh, I heard a voice and it said, nice evening, isn't it? I mean, just as close as if somebody was <laughs> feet away from me, and I kind of looked down the hill because I couldn't see anything, um, but I just kind of took it as, you know, sound travels weirdly sometimes, maybe there's something at the bottom of the hill, but, you know, I was way up, I was probably on about an 80-foot bluff, but didn't think much of it, um, got in the car, big lead, and it was a really steep incline going down this hill. I get to the entrance, and the wheels of the car just jank left. And I missed the entryway. So the cemetery wasn't that big. So I drove back around. And I thought that the car had probably like one of the wheels had a pothole or something. You know, sometimes it'll twist your wheel. Right. But I get up there and it's perfectly flat. And as I go to the entrance, I don't know what for some reason, but I just kind of set my hand open base on my steering wheel. And it just turned in my hand. Back to the left. And around again. And then I was freaked out. <laughs> so when I came around the third time, 
I opened my door, I stuck my left foot on the ground, and I walked that car until it was pointed down that hill. And then my next stop was down the Conwa, and I was going to spend the night in Charleston. And I swear to God there was somebody in my back seat. I must have looked in my rearview mirror a hundred times, wearing there was somebody sitting back there. And I wasn't into paranormal, so I wasn't that easily, you know, spooked about any of this stuff. But uh, that was my introduction. And then I got home, I told somebody, I said, yeah, I was just lipless, and you know, all this stuff happened. And he goes, wow, you know, it's quite pleasant. And I go, yeah, that was a town across the river on the final line. And they said, what do you know about Mothman? And I said, no. So that night I watched the movie. And it was like, I'll be. So, and that cemetery, I guess, you know, I further read about it, that there were some uh, guys digging a grave, and they saw a Mothman sitting in a tree in that cemetery. Yeah, that was one of the very first sightings, I believe. I think it might have been actually the first sighting. Yeah. And I was like, I'll be damned. It's like, so, I don't know if it was Mothman, but it was something. But I mean, it just said, nice evening, isn't it? I know it's not a very scary thing to say, but it is kind of weird. <laughs> weird <laughs> hey, you're up there all by Anytime I hear but, some type of voice and there's nobody around, it doesn't matter what it says. That's scary enough for me. So, yeah, I've been around it, like, you know, in things. So I know it's around there. And, you know, back then I didn't know shadow people were. So, I mean, I mean, I thought it was, you know, an apparition of something, but I didn't realize I was looking at demons. So, yeah, ignorance is bliss sometimes. Yeah, I so, <laughs> so it is around these sites, but uh, like I said, you know, you go there and they're portals and they're gateways. It's just like you don't know who's coming through that door. And, you know, these giants are Nephilim and have been associated with uh, uh, the dark side. So um, if there's paranormal groups out there, go to a mound, let me know what you find. Awesome. Fritz, it's been fun having you on. I've, like I said, this has been way too long of getting you on. Tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, how they can get your books, uh, the best way to find out more about you, because we've just barely scratched the surface of, of, of what you uh, have talked about in your books. Oh, uh, well, if you want to get a hold of me, um, I'm on Facebook, Fritz Zimmerman. You can always go there. Um, all my books, uh, The Nephilim Chronicles, Falling in the Ohio Valley, Upland Chronicles, a travel guide to the uh, ancient ruins in New Ohio Valley, the Encyclopedia of Ancient Giants in North America, Mysteries of Ancient America, of ancient America Uncovering the Forbidden. They were all on Amazon. Yeah, and if you do a, a, a Google search of, of uh, Fritz Zimmerman books, they all come up pretty easy. Uh, but I'm also going to put links of it uh, up on our uh, our uh, Facebook page and uh, on Twitter so everybody can, can snatch those things up. Because I'm telling you, this is one of the most fascinating subjects that I didn't know existed until just a few months back, and now I can't get enough of it. Oh, let me add one last thing. Sure. Us. The earthworks in the Ohio Valley are based on a numerical codex called Dumatra, so the sun symbols are 666 feet in circumference. So that adds a little bit to the allure of going to these sites. Yeah, I mean, that definitely, you talked about them being... Uh, uh, on the darker side, you can't get any darker than adding some 666 into the measurements. Yeah, you got some giants. You got some Nephilim from the Bible with Hispanic uh, roots. You got 666 uh, earthworks. Yeah, put some garlic around your neck and off you go. <laughs> I don't know if garlic work, work on all those situations. I know that works good for vampires and werewolves and stuff. 
say is like, is that demons or vampires? Like, <laughs> probably ought to get that straight for you. Go. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll do a little more research on my end. Fritz, it was great having you on. Thank you so much for giving me some time. I know you're busy, probably especially extra busy this time of year. Well, it's been great. It's been great talking with you, Jerry. All right. Well, thank you, sir, and we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Now, see, tell me after listening to that that you don't have an interest now in giants mm-hmm. and burial mounds. And we got those burial mounds all over where we're at. We can probably, he told me uh, off the air that there are several within like a 30-minute a, a drive from us. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. But there's giants always around me, so yeah. that's what happens when you're <laughs> 4'10". Just putting that out there. Okay, guys, I've, I've changed my mind in the midst of the interview and I'm going to tell you what next week's show is going to be out it's going to be on the Hexum Heads and if you've never heard that story the heck is that? it is a fantastic story <laughs> it's about a couple of heads a little stone heads that were actually found over in Great Britain mm-hmm. and uh, they led to all kinds of hijinks and paranormal and uh, sightings and stuff like that and oh, it's dang. it's a it's a fantastic story so it's not a real common one out there some of you will probably have heard it but it's it's one i think you'll be fascinated oh way i can't wait to hear so thank you guys so much for everything thank you for bearing with my scratchy voice and and uh skipping some itunes reviews and stuff last week i hope you really enjoyed uh uh, Father Gary Thomas, I know we've gotten rave reviews on, on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said that was their favorite show so far. And uh, it, it took a lot of work to get him, and I'm glad he finally agreed. And Me we're too. glad you enjoyed it. We, you guys deserve the best. And I promise you, we are trying to to get you some top-of-the-line guests. Uh, and some of the people I'm working on right now, I think you guys uh, will be excited about if we actually get them. So. Yeah, I hope we do. So one of my favorites is I'm working on, and I think this is going to happen probably in the next couple of weeks, is, uh, and I'm going to feel bad because I don't remember her name right off the bat. Oh, geez. But it's Pepper from the American Horror Stories. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And and uh, she's she's actually agreed to actually come on the show. We're just hammering a timeout. But uh, Natalie is her name. I'm sorry. I felt bad for just calling her Pepper. I imagine she probably hates when people do that. But her name's Natalie Grossman. And uh, she is an awesome actress, and I'm excited to to be able to get her on here. I think you guys will get a big kick out of her. I'm <laughs> good. Thank you guys so much. We will see you very soon. Make sure you check out uh, bombpodmedia.com. Check out all of the shows that's in our group. We have a lot of great shows. If you like ours, you're going to like all the others. And uh, also check out the Dark Myths Collective uh, because we're a member of that group also. Thank you guys so much, and we'll talk to you next week. You guys have a good week and love one another.